We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blind is producing today's program. Today we're going to talk with Lori Gano. She is the author of How He Loves Us, Revealing the Affections of God. That's coming up later this hour. In the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Harry uh, L. Hibbert. He's a Vietnam veteran, a retired attorney, and author of Curse of the Coloring Book. It's a novel that was inspired by his own true story of combat and PTSD. We're going to talk about how we should express our gratitude to veterans, what we should and shouldn't say, and uh, consider some of the challenges that veterans and their families face. Finally, in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jarrett Stepman. He's the editor of the Daily Signal. Uh, He's an editor. We're going to uh, follow up on uh, a focus I had yesterday on the program regarding millennials and their favorable uh, view of communism 100 years after communism swept through Eastern Europe. All of that coming up uh, on today's program. Well, there was some distressing news that we heard from our own backyard uh, earlier today. Two people were found dead along a trail in Forest Park this morning, according to Portland police. Officers were called to the intersection of Wildwood Trail and Upper uh, McClay Trail near Piddock Mansion, where search and rescue teams found two bodies. Uh, The bodies were found in steep terrain, about 80 feet off the trail. Police said that the bodies were not visible Uh, to the naked eye. They were found as authorities continued to search for 15-year-old Anika Vaughn, a missing Aloha girl who ran away from home with a sexual abuse suspect. The names of the people found dead were not immediately released. An autopsy by the Oregon State Medical Examiner to determine the identities of the deceased and the cause of death is scheduled for later this week, according to Portland police. They say there's no danger to the general public, but they did say they found a truck connected to Vaughn's disappearance in a gravel parking lot on Northwest Cornell Road. The uh, truck belongs to 23-year-old Zachary Peterson of Pasco, Washington, a backpack that belonged to Vaughn. Uh, was also found inside the truck, which was towed for evidence processing earlier on uh, this week on Monday. Officers conducted a search of the wooded area where the truck was uh, discovered late Monday evening. They searched another wooded area in Southwest Fairview uh, Boulevard and the Hemlock Trail. The search was uh, based on a tip that someone heard voices in the woods. After a lengthy search, which included a canine team and air support, police didn't find anyone um, on Tuesday. Search teams returned to the area, Forest Park, at about 8 a.m. this morning and found the bodies at around 8.45. Now, Vaughn, the um, 15-year-old, had run away from her home on the 30th of October. Detectives believe that she, an uh, alleged victim of sex abuse, was with Peterson, who was the abuse suspect. Uh, The father of the teenage girl, Rick Vaughn, said that his daughter's disappearance was a surprise. There were no indications that she would run away, he said. I want her back safe and sound and healthy and an opportunity to be loved and cared about. That's it, he said. Uh, He was reported, or rather, she was reported missing um, 
earlier in, uh, or I should say late in October, Peterson was reported missing at uh, to Pasco Police Department on the 30th of October before uh, he disappeared. He called a crisis phone line. Detectives believed he was suicidal and had a gun in his possession. He was last seen in the Portland area. So we don't know uh, the identity of the two bodies, but the suspicion is that this may, in fact, answer that mystery And what we do also know is that there are two families that are going to be grieved once identities have been made and uh, information has been passed along to them. Just a sad uh, story very close to home. I know we'll we'll be praying for um, those families. In other news, Democrat Ralph Northam won a bitter race for Virginia governor last night. Dealing a setback to President Donald Trump with a decisive victory over a Republican who had adopted some of the president's combative tactics and issues, at least late in the game. Northam, the state's lieutenant governor, overcame a barrage of attack ads by Republican Ed Gillespie that hit the soft-spoken Democrat on on, uh, divisive issues such as immigration, gang crime and Confederate statues. Well, Trump, who endorsed Gillespie but did not campaign with him, had taken a break from his uh, Asia trip to send tweets and record messages on Tuesday supporting the former chairman of the Republican National Committee. But after the outcome, Trump quickly distanced himself from Gillespie, saying Ed Gillespie worked hard but did not embrace me or what I stand for. With the economy doing record numbers, we will continue to win even bigger than before. End quote. At his victory party, Northam told supporters the sweeping Democratic win in Virginia sent a message to the country. Virginia has told us to end the divisiveness, that we will not condone hatred and bigotry, and to end the politics that have torn this country apart. Well, that's a pretty big message from one state, but uh, quoting the candidate, the Virginia race highlighted a slate of state and local elections that also included a governor's race in New Jersey, where Democrat Phil Murphy, a former investment banker and ambassador to Germany, defeated Republican Kim Guanagno for the right to succeed Republican Chris Christie. Uh, Murphy had promised to be a check on Trump in Democratic-leaning New Jersey. Uh, The Republican lieutenant governor had uh, hampered, or rather was hampered by her association with the unpopular Chris Christie, who is perhaps the most uh, the least popular uh, governor in the nation. Well, Murphy's win and the uh, Northam victory in Virginia, a state Democrat Uh, Hillary Clinton won by uh, 5% points in 2016 in the presidential election, provided a much-needed boost for national Democrats who were desperate to turn grassroots resistance to Trump into election victories. Democrats had already lost four special congressional elections earlier this year, but a strong turnout in the Democrat-leaning northern Virginia suburbs of Washington uh, helped propel Northam, who uh, in the end won relatively easily, with nearly all precincts reporting. He led by a 53% to 45% margin. Exit polls in Virginia showed the one-third of the voters went to the polls to oppose Trump and only 17 went to support him. Democrats also swept the other top statewide Virginia races, winning the offices of lieutenant governor, attorney general, and gained seats in the Virginia House of Delegates. Democrat Danica Rome beat a longtime Republican incumbent to become the first transgender person to win a state legislative race, saying that this is a comprehensive political victory from state house to courthouse. Thank you, Donald Trump. In Virginia, Democrats had worried that if Gillespie won, Republicans would see it as a green light to emphasize uh, cultural issues in their campaigns for next year's elections when all 435 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and 33 of the seats in the U.S. Senate's 100 come up for re-election. Republicans now control both chambers, but that may or may not be the case after the midterms. It would not be unprecedented. In fact, it's more likely.
likely, just statistically speaking, that this, the changeover would occur. Gillespie, speaking to crestfallen supporters in Richmond, Virginia, said that he'd run a very policy-focused campaign. But voters in Arlington County, a suburb of uh, a suburban Democratic stronghold bordering Washington, said national politics were important to their votes. Trump talks about draining the swamp, but Gillespie kind of is the swamp, said one Nick Pacemaker, who worked in marketing and considered himself a Republican until Trump won the party's presidential nomination. Peacemaker said Gillespie seemed to shift closer to Trump's policies after securing the Republican gubernatorial nomination. In local races across the county, Democratic Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York, Marty Walsh in Boston, both easily won re-election. Voters were also picking mayors in Detroit, Atlanta, Seattle, Charlotte, and North Carolina. Um, Jim uh, Garrity, uh, in response to the election, points this out. The key lesson of the night goes far beyond Gillespie. Right now, the Republican Party's brand in Virginia is dirt. Throw in the failure to make New Jersey even remotely competitive, and tonight is about as bad as it can get for the GOP. A sense of deja vu, uh, deja vu rather, from the results across the country 2006 and 2008. Democrats are no doubt energized by their daily outrages of the Trump era. Congressional Republicans and the Trump administration should feel slapped in the face and even more pressure to accomplish as much as possible between now and Election Day 2016. Hmm. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today marks the one-year anniversary of Donald Trump's surprising election victory. A look at some of his... Uh, Accomplishments, successes, failures, and a mixture of the two. Trump's most improbable um, and therefore impressive feat was winning the election at all after the vast majority of the mainstream media and commentators on both sides of the political aisle had given him almost no chance to win, even questioned whether or not he was serious about running. Trump not only did win, but he won decisively. Now, he didn't win the popular vote, but that's not how we elect presidents in the United States, at least for now. Trump's nomination and the Senate's subsequent confirmation of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Supreme Court is clearly his biggest achievement, and it's potentially his longest-lasting uh, impact on Washington. Gorsuch has proven to be an intellectual power with a deep commitment to the Constitution. Trump gets a positive grade for Gorsuch alone. Trump has also strongly uh, held to his commitment to drain the D.C. swamp via his uh, deregulation crusade. Thus far, he's on pace to outdo Ronald Reagan in slashing the scope and size of Washington's bloated regulatory out- overreach, which is approving uh, to save billions. And his administration is proving to be fairly adept at making uh, positive changes in that area. Failures? Well, the biggest and most obvious for uh, Trump and his administration, and quite frankly, even more so for congressional Republicans, is the inability to repeal or even moderately overhaul Obamacare. In fact, Trump is yet to see a major legislative achievement, despite the uh, GOP controlling both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. Again, at least for now, Trump has failed to win over and build a united front with congressional Republicans, which has derailed much of his first year's agenda and threatens future accomplishments. And then there's sort of the mixed bag. Uh, This is where most of Trump's first year should be classified on foreign policy. He's proven to be surprisingly uh, much more adept than most believe he would be. He's been successful in. Um, beating back the Islamic State and positively pressing the U.S. presence on the world scene. But the growing threat posed by North Korea and Iran, uh, of course, which is uh, much of the focus uh, on his Asian trip uh, that he's currently uh, 
Uh, on, as well as relations with China remain more of an open-ended question. Trump's relationship to the mainstream media has also proven a mixed bag. While he has successfully exposed the uh, bias and fake news propagated by the uh, mainstream, and he's also frequently engaged in distracting and needless Twitter spats, which sort of undermines uh, anything that he might do that has merit. Americans trust the mainstream media is at an historic low, but trust in Trump isn't much better. As for immigration, Trump has successfully empowered law enforcement to crack down on the problem, which has produced a significant decrease in the number of uh, individuals entering the country illegally. However, the construction of a border wall has been stymied by Congress's slowness in getting a budget put together. Every administration has its ups and downs and growing pains, and Trump is no different although different in other respects. On balance, despite suffering through historically negative press coverage, facing entrenched resistance from the opposition party, which is nothing really new, Trump has had a relatively good first year. And again, that's relatively. Well, the newest uh, Supreme Court justice I made reference to a moment ago is perhaps uh, Donald Trump's most lasting legacy thus far. Neil Gorsuch has made headlines since joining the court last spring, and not just for his written opinions, uh, pedantic, boorish, and juvenile. Those are words that have been applied to him. Annoying was another. In his uh, colleagues' faces, these are some of the harsh uh, things liberal court watchers have had to say about Gorsuch. It's hard to square these comments with the outpouring of support that he received from former clerks, classmates, others after he was nominated to the Supreme Court earlier this year. In recent episode of the Supreme Court podcast, First Mondays, NPR's legal affairs correspondent Nita Totenberg took aim at Gorsuch. First in her crosshairs was his uh, his habit of frequently citing the Constitution. Now imagine that, a sitting U.S. Ju- um, ju- uh, judge citing the Constitution, which he, of course, is sworn to uphold. She objected to Gorsuch bringing things back to first principles at oral argument. He often prefaces his questions by saying, let's look at what the Constitution says about this. It's always a good place to start. This should come as no surprise, but it was harshly criticized. When rumors were swirling about potential Supreme Court nominees in late 2016, a former Gorsuch clerk wrote on Yale's notice and comment blog, whenever a constitutional issue comes up in our case, or cases, he sent one of his clerks on a deep dive through the historical sources. We need to get this right, was the memo. The right meant as originally understood. As a member of the Supreme Court, Gorsuch is putting these principles into practice and fulfilling his commitment to faithfully interpret the Constitution according to its original public meaning. And that's not all Totenberg had to say about him. She claimed there was a rift on the court between Gorsuch and Justice Elena Kagan, Uh, She said that my surmise, and that's, of course, a guess, from what I'm hearing is that Justice Kagan really has taken Gorsuch on a on in conference. And that is it's pretty tough battle and it's going to get tougher. And she is about as tough as they come. And I am sure I'm not sure rather that he's as tough or dare I say, maybe not as smart. I always thought he was very smart, but he has a tin ear somehow. And he doesn't seem to bring anything new to the conversation. End quote. This is Nina Totenberg's surmising. First, I'm highly skeptical of someone purporting to know what happened when the court met in conference. The justices are notoriously secretive about those meetings. Not even law clerks are allowed in the room. During conference, the justices discuss cases following oral arguments and cast their initial votes in conference. 
Though they sometimes change after draft opinions have been circulated, this is precisely the time that justices debate the issue in uh, in these cases. That's what's expected. Secondly, Totenberg's assertion that Gorsuch is maybe not as smart as she thought is uh, off base. Anyone who has read his speeches or his written opinions, either from his time on the appeals court or his uh, first two months on the Supreme Court, can see why that is patently false. The Columbia, Harvard, Oxford educated judge weaves literal, uh, literary uh, references into his opinions. He writes in a clear, concise manner that's easy for lawyers and lay people alike to understand. But then again, he's an originalist. And this uh, accomplishment in quotes for Trump is is not to be tolerated by court watchers on the other end of the uh, continuum. The president, of course, is continuing his trip, uh, his Asian tour. He's spending time next in China. But I noted that uh, North Korea's uh, crippling nuclear test site is turning the area into a wasteland where deformed babies are being born. Eighty percent of vegetation dies off due to nuclear radiation. Nearly two dozen defectors told a South Korean newspaper earlier this week. The Research Association, A Vision of North Korea, interviewed 21 North Korean defectors who lived in that area nearby town north of the nuclear test site where six tests have been conducted and said babies were reportedly being born with uh, birth defects. Residents feared radiation contamination because of the high mortality rate uh, for um, any form of life, according to the South Korean newspaper. I personally saw corpses floating down the river with their limbs severed, says one defector. Another added, I spoke on the phone with family members I left behind there, and they told me that all of the underground wells dried up after the sixth nuclear test. Well, the defector said drinking water in the town uh, streamed down from the uh, mountaintop where the nuclear tests were reportedly conducted underground. They appear, uh, they added rather that authorities left residents in the area to fend for themselves and provided no warning prior to the detonations or protections after. A defector who fled North Korea in 2010 uh, recalled uh, how only soldiers and their family members were evacuated before two tests were conducted. During the first test in October of 2006 and a second in 2009, only family members of soldiers were evacuated to underground shafts. Ordinary people were completely unaware of the tests. I personally saw, again, uh, corpses floating down uh, downstream. And then there were pictures provided in other accounts of the, uh, the toll that the nuclear program in North Korea is having on its people. President uh, Trump is currently uh, engaged in tough talk in uh, the Asian countries of Japan, South Korea, next China. Uh, to try to encourage them to move as aggressively as possible against the North Korean threat. We'll continue to follow that trip as the president moves on, as I mentioned, to China. And finally, IRS Commissioner John Koskinen, on the last day of uh, of his job on Thursday, it appears that he has uh, he's decided to bestow one final gift on the business community on his way out. This year, the IRS will strictly enforce the Obamacare employer mandate for the first time since its inception. The agency confirmed to the Wall Street Journal on Tuesday, suddenly handing out uh, penalties to companies with 50 employees or more that fail to provide affordable insurance to full-time employees and dependents. The letter also dates back to 2015, which means companies could be on the hook for years' worth of financial consequences, making that announcement the day before his last. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Larry, uh, Lori rather, Gano. She's the author of How He Loves Us, Revealing the Affectionate Affections of God. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that women's fears fall into three key categories. Social fears of not being liked, family fears, sacrificing family time for work, and relationship fears, worrying about whether a relationship is going to last. My next guest, Lori Gano, is a wife, a mom, and speaker who runs her own successful construction company. It would seem she's living the feminist dream, but according to her, that's not what matters in the long run. I walked a long and very broken road for many years, she says. She shares how putting her own fears aside and embracing the love of God transformed her life. In her new book, How He Loves Us, Revealing the Affections of God, she offers keen insights into the lives of eight famous women in the Bible, what they did right and where they erred. The good news is that no matter where they went wrong, their sin did not change the course of their destiny. God uses us in spite of our flaws or imperfections and delights in taking our brokenness and doing something extraordinary with it. He uses the available instead of the predictable. Well, on a mission to connect uh, women with God's passionate love for them, speaker, teacher, and author and businesswoman, Lori Gano, founded Out of the Ashes Ministry. She has spent her uh, career in construction as a licensed general contractor and owner of a residential design-build construction company. It is uh, here where God implanted a passion for restoration and grew that passion into a longing to see women restored in the fullness of Christ. She and her husband, Jonathan, have one teenage daughter. They live in the beautiful hills of East Tennessee, and she joins us today to talk about her uh, wonderful book, How He Loves Us, Revealing the Affections of God. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, it's uh, it, it's always um, surprising to me that we have to be reminded of the love that God has for us. It's uh, replete in Scripture, uh, and yet we tend to uh, underestimate or perhaps overlook the depth and the breadth of His love for us. Why do you think that's the case? Isn't it amazing that we do that? Yes. You know, I, I think that we are so limited in our human capacity to understand what love is and what love looks like, and we relate that to the relationships that we ourselves have encountered and experienced on our own walk. And it is so deficient of the love that God has for us. And I don't think that we'll ever fully understand it while we're on this earth. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I was set out on a mission to, to the best of my ability, begin to um, explain that and help women not only see it, but feel it, uh, have an intimate experience with it for themselves. Now, you say that you walked a, a broken road for many years. Uh, share a bit of your story. Absolutely. Uh, I was born into a family that suffered with uh, what they diagnosed as, the doctors diagnosed as a debilitating mental illness. And so my biological father was schizophrenic. Um, He also was dependent on alcohol. My brother uh, as well was uh, diagnosed as bipolar. My mother was diagnosed as uh, having severe depression and put on antipsychotics and antidepressants, and she was also alcohol-reliant on those as well. And and in my house, especially with my father, I dealt with some very significant abuse. Um, he was uh, he was really checked out, and, and he had my family convinced that he was a member of the CIA and that it was his job to take out the undesirables. He really lived in this fantasy world. Uh, but there was some abuse that happened with my father specifically, and and um, and it shattered me on the inside. And for years, I began to struggle with anxiety, and that anxiety eventually developed into panic disorder. And in that panic disorder, the abuse related to an issue where um, I, he 
um, stabbed me in the back of the throat over and over with a fork while he was giving me a bite of his food one afternoon until I vomited. And so this anxiety attached itself to getting sick. And so I began to starve myself as a teenager when I got older and thinking that I could control um, anything, really. I just wanted to control something. And so I began to control my food intake because my anxiety had, had attached itself to that event. And when I did that, I began a road toward anorexia, and I struggled with anorexia for 16 years. Um, And and I mean, it took over my life, this anxiety and anorexia. I I began to lose my hair. I lost my teeth. Uh, Of course, I had no understanding of my value or my worth. And and then I hit a point in in my young life where I met a man who, wouldn't you know, would be the first person to just really come in and tell me that he loved me and tell me that I was beautiful and tell me all these things I was so thirsty to hear. And it was such a lie. And I got pulled into this world of uh, just darkness, horribly vile sexual sin. Uh, He just had me um, in, in the throes of the worst of the worst. And can I tell you that I began um, developing uh, friendships, I'll say that in quotes, with just some of the worst of society. And these were people who were um, pagans and Wiccans, witches and warlocks, thieves, felons, strippers, you name it. It was the worst of society, and not because of the things that they were doing, but because they did not care to improve. They did not care to change. They were not repentant in any way. And and I, I was just absolutely enveloped in this place where I was made to, to believe that it was love and it was good. And can I just tell you not a thing about it was good. Mm. Uh, now, hearing that backstory, one wonders how you ever came to uh, encounter Christ in a way that you recognized his love for you. We tend to um, find ourselves repelled or, or believe that God is repelled by our, our backstory, our history. How did you have an encounter with Christ that communicated his love to you? Mm. It was just, it was so amazing. And, you know, I think we all want this one huge transformative moment. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that just be amazing where huh. everything for us uh, is switched like a light switch and Prince Charming comes in and we're rescued and it's all over. Um, you know, the truth is, is that I had gone on a, a youth trip at the age of 13. So it was, it was actually before I stepped into this wild world of sin, um, holy, like I did. But, at 13, I had gone on this youth conference, and I had been introduced to Christ. And, I, and and you know, I just I laid my heart out before him, and I just said, oh, I just I just surrender myself to you. I, you know, I love you. I, I want you. But the truth is, is that I left that youth conference, and I had to go back into the dark hole of where I was living. And, and there was no discipleship. There was no examples of Christian living uh, within my house right there. And so I didn't know what a life lived for Christ looked like. And and as I began to step um, further into that pit, as I as I got older in my teenage years, I just remember God's voice getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And and really, what was incredible was I knew that I belonged to Him in the midst of all of the horror that I was living. But at the age of twenty three, I met my husband, and he was the first man that I heard mention the name of God since I was a much younger teenager. And boy, did he get my attention so fast. 
And the Lord used him to awaken me again and to remind me uh, how to see the light and how to walk toward the light instead of walking to a point where I could no longer hear God's voice. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but we're going to take a quick break. The book we're talking about, How He Loves Us, Revealing the Affections of God. Lori Gano is my guest, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 48 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest is on a mission to connect women with God's passionate love for them. Her book is titled, How He Loves Us, Revealing the Affections of God. In your book, you highlight eight women mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Tell us a bit about what they have to say to us and how this book draws out the love of God in their stories. Absolutely. So uh, the story of um, each woman, we look at Eve and Sarah, Rahab, the three Marys, uh, and then we uh, go into the story of Esther and um, Ruth and also the Proverbs 31 woman. But all of this is to walk a parallel road with the journey of the Shulamite and the Song of Solomon. And the Song of Solomon like so many other things uh, in the Word of God, offer us an allegory. And in the Song of Solomon, we can see truly that affectionate pursuit of God. And we see it from chapter 1 of the Song of Solomon, where the Shulamite is very young, very immature, and, and, and struggles with shame, like so many of us do, and uncertainty. And we watch her transform as she journeys with her king into chapter 8. And so along with that, we have the stories of each of these other women of the Bible to help strengthen the message of how God pursues us and how His pursuit of us transforms us through His love for us. You make the point that we often focus on our own insufficiencies, and the truth is all of us is insufficient in view of of a holy God, but you make the point that God sees our potential. Um, Help us understand how God sees us even though he's truthful about what's true about us. Absolutely. So, you know, first of all, this this message of this book um, was written. I wrote this because I was teaching women who had come out of prostitution, prison, addiction, domestic violence, human trafficking, different situations, and I would watch their struggle to overcome their past, to walk out of their past fully. And I knew that if they had not had a personal and intimate encounter with the love of Christ, they they would mm-hmm. not and could not be changed in the same lasting way, you know. And so I wanted them to really begin to understand that God sees them not in the choices that they made yesterday, but in, in the potential of who He created them to be decades down the road. And so He knows us in our fullness. He knows us to the potential that, that He created in us. And when we don't um, walk in that knowledge, we're missing so much. He sees us flawless because He has made us righteous before God through His sacrifice. And when, when we understand in that picture of what happens in, with the Shulamite and the Song of Solomon and, and how He sees her, he, he calls her His undefiled. Uh, he calls her His flawless one. And that's simply because He has made us flawless. But as we begin to understand that language, and then it's consistent in the stories of the other women of the Bible, it is life-changing for us. Now, your book is not designed to just be read from cover to cover, but you encourage uh, women to really stop and consider what the scripture has to say about the love of God expressed as you uh, if you as you focus on the stories of each of these women there's opportunity to journal for example and in, in encouraging women to pause and just reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to their heart describe how you see your readers uh, navigating through how he loves us that's right 
it was it was written as a Bible study, and so it's divided into those eight chapters. It's got reflective questions at the end of each chapter, and it's just to take that time, whether it's an independent study or or a group study that uh, it's being used in, it's to take that time and pause in the stories of those women, and, and also then to look at the story of where the Shulamite is in each chapter, and, and we're able to parallel that with our own walk. And I've been doing women's conferences focused on the affections of God right now for churches and organizations all over, and um, and it's just powerful. And so at the end of each session, we even pause, and we have this small group time where ladies come together, and they begin to discuss, you know, what's going on in the content of each of these uh, chapters that are broken down. Now, one of the things that you, one of the points that you make is that the, the the mistakes that we make, the sin that we engage in, doesn't change the course of our destiny. Now, explain what you mean by that, because we often imagine there are consequences to our actions. How does um, our failure to live up to the standard that God set for us or that we've set for ourselves not change the course of His ultimate destiny for us? Sure. You know, I think that there's some confusion in how this can be presented. And so certainly when we step outside of God's will, He will discipline us. He doesn't discipline us for the sake of just punishing us because He somehow sees that as fun. Uh, but it, it's discipline in order to refine and, and shape us. Um, obviously, any of us can choose to walk a life completely outside of the will of God when He has purposed us for something else. But if God speaks and says, uh, and calls something into existence and calls something into um, the fullness of its uh, eternal uh, value and course and where it's headed and what will be done with the life of a person, then that's because He knows the steps that we're going to take, and we will land in that area. But we're not disqualified because of decisions that we've made in the past. When we come before the Lord with a a repentant heart, and the posture of our heart is, is raw and sincere and authentic before Him, and we want to be changed, and we want to move into the fullness of what He has for us, He is always, always standing before us in love, ready to to walk that path with us. We just have to ask for it. Now, among the eight women mentioned uh, in your book that are uh, certainly taken from the Scripture, is there one that stands out to you that demonstrates um, the the love of God in a more dramatic way than any of the others, or is there a favorite? You know, it's so funny because my absolute favorite is not in the book. It's the woman at the well. But um, beyond her, it's the Shulamite. It's the story that is embedded in the Song of Solomon. I never imagined um, seeing and hearing uh, exactly what it is that, that, that God was showing us in His Word through that. And I sat in on a workshop. I just want to honor Pastor Ryan Wyatt. I sat in on a workshop he did several years ago on the Song of Solomon. He presented this allegory, and I thought, wow. I mean, that I walked out of that workshop changed. But you know what? I wanted to dig into the Word. I wanted to verify it. I wanted to sift it through the Scriptures and make sure that all of it stuck. And I spent three years studying that. I spent three years studying the original language. And, and the more I dug, the more I found, the more confirmation, the more treasure I found through God's Word. And it was just incredible. And so by far, the Shulamite of anyone in the Bible has captivated me uh, beyond words. And so I was so excited, not just to share that message, but to see women transformed by that message. You make the point um, in How He Loves Us that Jesus fully supported and encouraged women. We live in a culture where that's not always the case. Why is it important for women to understand that God is for us through His Son, Jesus Christ? You know, I think that this is a really hard time because our culture has twisted and perverted the role of women. And I can tell you from my past lifestyle that, 
you know, I was fully involved in things that are now culturally the norm. And in no way, according to God's Word, is that acceptable. But we've lost the value of understanding that men and women are equal in essence. They're different in function. And, and we have to hold tight to both of those truths. And we see Jesus himself honor and uphold women, uh, having a place of value. And, um, and I think it's so important for women to know that, you know, we are strong as the helpmate to our, our spouses. We are strong as, uh, and influential in our culture, in our communities, in our nation. We carry, uh, an impactful role for people and to, and to twist what God meant when he created us differently is just really denying him the beauty of the creation that he made. When women come to recognize the the profound, deep, uh, and wide love that God has for them, when they come to understand the affections of God, what difference does that make in how she views herself and views her, her place in the body of Christ and in the world? I think that as much as we don't want to, when we come to understand the good news of the gospel, we can tend to really pedal hard trying to do all the right things, make all the right decisions, um, not mess up according to God's Word, you know, to live by these standards and to do and to do and to do, and we become very task-oriented. But when we shift our mind and our heart to understanding His affectionate love for us, it seats us in a place of safety. It reminds us of who we are regardless of what we do day to day. And we are then propelled to do all of these magnificent things serving God, not because of fear, not because of obligation, but because we cannot imagine spending one moment of our life wasting it on ourselves, wasting it on a self-seeking venture. And so we begin to chase after uh, ministry. And I don't mean, you know, stepping into a mission field or working at a church. I mean, just ministering into the lives of others that we uh, run into on a day-to-day basis that, you know, in our kids, in our schools, in our jobs, our hospitals, uh, the gas stations, anywhere we go, ministering to others, serving others, loving others uh, is propelled from the very essence of who we are because we are just seated firmly in that affectionate love of Christ. What words of encouragement can you leave um, women, and for that matter, men, with this evening? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I want others to know that it does not matter where you've been, and boy, can I attest to that. It does not matter where you've been. It does not matter what destruction you have left behind you. If you will just come before the Lord and, and be repentant and look to Him for your value, look to Him for your purpose, look to Him for the course of your life, He can come in and absolutely transform who you are, um, what you're living for, how you see the situations that are in front of you. You know, I look back to the me that was the me 20 years ago, and I cannot even recognize that woman. I, I don't even know who she was. I can't connect to her at all, except to look back and, and take a glimpse at what it is that God can completely break apart, transform, and restore into something that has purpose. Now, for listeners who are interested in your ministry, Out of Ashes Ministries, how can they be in touch? 
uh, please um, go to our website at www.outofashesministries.com. Uh, there's certainly links through there. There's links to the book there. There's uh, links to contact us there. We would love to hear from you and love to connect with you and your story. Well, Lori, I thank you so much for sharing your story and for providing this resource that will help women to come to recognize and enjoy the affections of God. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Again, the book is titled How He Loves Us, Revealing the Affections of God. The book is published by Redemption Press. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, about six minutes after five o'clock. In just a moment, we're going to talk with Howard L. Hibbert. He's a Vietnam veteran and retired attorney. Veterans Day is coming up. We'll talk about it. Also, Jarrett Stepman will join us. He's the editor of The Daily Signal. Millennials are developing a favorable uh, view of communism 100 years after communism swept through Eastern Europe. We'll talk about the implications of that position and much more. Well, Veterans Day is coming up, and many of us will say to those we know served in the military, Thank you for your service. Is that the right thing to say? Does it communicate what we really want to say? For those of us who are truly grateful, we try to comprehend the sacrifice they made on our behalf. We recognize that our freedom was won for us. It has been preserved for us by others. But how do we approach this occasion, as it comes up every year, in a way that's meaningful for those to whom our focus is supposed to be Um, uh, focused. Well, Howard L. Hibbert is a Vietnam veteran and retired attorney. He's the author of Curse of the Coloring Book, a novel inspired by his own true story of combat and PTSD. He quit college in 1967 to volunteer for the Army during the escalation of the Vietnam War. He rose through the ranks. He was discharged at age 22. Then he was a by then rather he was a paratrooper, a first lieutenant, a combat platoon leader. Briefly, he was company commander. Among the medals he received, two bronze stars, one WV device for heroism and ground combat, one oak leaf cluster, and an army commendation medal. After the army, he graduated from college and then law school and practiced as an attorney for thirty four years. Well, he's joining us today to talk about Veterans Day and how those of us who have not served in the military, might uh, express our gratitude in a meaningful way to those who have. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Georgina. My temptation is to say, as most of us do, thank you for your service. Is that a meaningful way to express gratitude uh, to those who, like yourself, served in our military uh, over the years and are serving? Well, it's a good first step. Uh, when, I, when I was discharged back in 1970 and came through San Francisco, I got spit on. So thank you for your service as opposed to being spit on and just basically uh, treated as a social pariah. It is a better step. But I think it comes off as being patronizing. I mean, you get your car serviced. I think thank you for your commitment to this country. Thank you for your courage. But much more importantly, promote my idea to your congressperson to require four weeks of discharge training. It takes eight weeks of basic training to get out of the military, mm-hmm. and we're just releasing these people back into society without, without in, 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 in any way to, to um, transition them back into, into the program. Uh, a Veterans Administration 2016 study found 20 veterans commit suicide every day in the U.S., not counting drug overdoses, hospitalization, and underemployment. Using the United States Army recruiting website, the cost of basic training and advanced infantry training is $73,000. This represents a, a, an investment of serious money to train a person to operate as a team and performing complicated, dangerous tasks 
under extraordinary circumstances. People perform under great pressure as a team member should be valued. As I indicated before, the military requires eight weeks uh, basic training, and I think they should require four weeks discharge training. And uh, a part of that training should be vocational testing, um, clothing, learning computer skills, learning how to interview, but most importantly, have each veteran uh, connected to a U.S.-wide job data bank, where when they leave, they're either going to go to a vocational school, college, or, or into a job right away. And then for six months afterwards, there, there should be group counseling to measure how the veteran's actually fitting in, mm-hmm. whether something needs to be changed or not. Well, you make such an excellent point. Basic training is pre- preparing an individual to engage in what may be combat. You certainly served in combat. Describe for us what it's like beyond not being received home as well as you should have been, but what it's like to try to reassimilate into society after you have spent a period of time in combat without any transition that helps to, to get you from there to, to here. Well, after I got spit on at San Francisco Airport, I realized that the, the, the entire military thing was a very bad idea. But then, anyway, my second book called Revenge of the Coloring Book covers from the time, it's due out next year, covers from my discharge. So I took my first midterm exams in October 15th, or basically eight months. And it, it, in, this, in this upcoming novel, I really explain just how difficult it is to come back to a world where, where nothing makes any sense. Uh, a, a combat veteran never feels the same about, about his, his home as the way he did before he left it. The, his very fabric uh, that, that supported feeling comfortable and trusting uh, society that, is, that has been torn. And the only way to build that back is it, 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 through group therapy. A really good book on that is called Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman, M.D. It's a really easy read. So if you suffered rape or combat or something else that has that, that really torn the fabric of your life, uh, you need to find another group like, 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 like Alcoholics Anonymous. And thereby the group gets together and they support each other, and then you, get, you, you build a new fabric of trust. Now, you experienced PTSD when you returned back to the country after serving in, in Vietnam. What was available to you at that time, and are you encouraged that there's at least more attention being paid, although there needs to be uh, additional resource available? Well, in 1970, PTSD was not even a mm-hmm. psychological diagnosis. So I, I received nothing, and nothing was told to me about it. So when I got back after getting spit on, I decided to take the entire experience and put it in the back of the closet. That is absolutely the worst thing you can do when you suffer a trauma. Finding out other people and relating to those other people and sorting your life so it has a, a measure of trust and understanding seems to be the only way back. But putting it in the closet and not talking about it is a death sentence. For, for me, when I came back, I became an attorney. And as an attorney, it's just like a lieutenant. You're taking care of somebody else and not minding what's going on. Well, that was, that was my coping mechanism for not paying attention to, to the underlying uh, uncertainty and uneasiness I felt about that being back at all. So, let's see, I'm trying to think, think what would be a good way to explain this. I, I, I think the only way to do it, 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 it is, is through group therapy that I know of, and this is what Judith Thurman recommends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What advice, and we're almost out of time, but what advice do you give family members who are trying to encourage a returning um, a veteran to assimilate into society but may need that kind of uh, fellowship with others who have experienced similar trauma? Promote. First of all, most veterans are going to say, there's nothing wrong with me, I can do this by myself. 
promote going down to the VA or the vet center and actually having them engage in the process so they start understanding why they feel at ease and why things don't look right. Uh, and more importantly, since there is no, no, no discharge training, as, as, as I'm promoting, uh, try and force the, 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 or not force, I shouldn't say force, but try and persuade the mm-hmm. veteran to, to go to school or, 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 or find some way to keep them busy because sitting around, not doing anything, or finding a menial job where there's no satisfaction uh, is, is going to be, is going to come out later on in the end and be, de- and be de- debilitating. Well, I appreciate you've given us a great deal to think about, and let me put this in a way that that is genuine. I want to thank you for your courage and your willingness now to speak out on behalf of other veterans who may need the kinds of services you are recommending. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Again, Howard L. Hibbard uh, is uh, the guest of Vietnam veteran, retired attorney, and is the author of uh, of Chef PTSD. He found uh, cooking is one of the things that helped him through the transition period and his life as a returning veteran. 15 minutes after 5 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that you have a personal invitation from me and a couple of my friends, Deborah Greenwich and Jerutha Greenwich, as we are going to be presenting a concert on Friday night, November 17th, and a women's conference on Saturday, November 18th as Undaunted. We're also going to be featuring at the conference on Saturday speakers Barb Boswell, Jody Mayhew, Trish Jeter, and Gloria Stidham. Our, our theme this year is Trust, the Journey from Fear to Faith. Now, if you read the headlines, you listen to the news, for that matter, you listen to this program, you know there's much that would cause one's heart to fear and yet, we are called to be men and women of faith. And so we're going to explore that journey, how we uh, f- move from fear to faith. We're looking forward to that. Now, the concert on Friday night will just be to inspire us and to remind us of the uh, provision and the sufficiency of Christ. And then on Saturday, women are invited to join us from uh, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. as we're going to take a deeper dive into the subject of trust and uh, take that journey together from fear to faith. For more information and to register, you can go to Undaunted Ministries. Dot org. That's UndauntedMinistries.org. I also have a phone number, which I don't have with me, and I apologize for that, but I'll have that for you uh, tomorrow. But check it out, and we'd love to have you join us. Again, that's Friday and Saturday, November 17th at 18th at New Song Church. Well, the co-founder of Fusion GPS, we are now being told, the uh, firm behind the uh, unverified Trump dossier that's uh, garnered a great deal of attention, apparently met with a Russian lawyer before and after a key meeting she had last year with Trump's son. This is according to uh, latest reports. The contacts shed new light on the um, uh, firm that's closely tied uh, to the Russian interests that the Republicans have been tethered to at a time when it was financing research to discredit the uh, candidate Donald Trump. Well, the opposition research firm was faced has faced a renewed scrutiny after litigation revealed that the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign paid for that research. Congressional Republicans have since questioned whether that politically financed research contributed to the FBI's investigation of Russian collusion with the Trump campaign, making Fusion's 2016 contracts with Russian interests all the more relevant. Well, the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting involving Donald Trump Jr. and Russian lawyer Natalia Vets something Skaya, occurred during a critical period. At that time, uh, Fox News has learned that uh, bank records show Fusion GPS was paid uh, by the law firm 
uh, for work on behalf of a Kremlin-linked oligarch while paying a former British spy, Christopher Steele, to dig up dirt on Donald Trump through his Russian contacts. Hours before the Trump Tower meeting on the 9th of June of 2016, the Fusion co-founder and ex-Wall Street Journal reporter Glenn Simpson was with, um, uh, let's see, Veselinskaya in a Manhattan federal courtroom, a confidential source is saying. Uh, Court records reviewed um, email correspondence and published reports corroborates the pair's presence together. The source says that they also were together after the Trump Tower meeting. What we are finding out is that there is a lot of Russian influence in Washington and a lot of money um, uh, that's having influence on our political process in Washington. Uh, Simpson's presence with the uh, Russian operative during his cr- this critical week in June, together with revelations about Fusion's simultaneous financial ties with the DNC, the Clinton campaign and Russian interests, raises new questions about the company's role in the 2016 election. Special counsel Robert Mueller is investigating the Trump Tower meeting as part of the probe of Russian interference in last year's election. Simpson and Fusion GPS were hired uh, by a um, uh, Russian firm, um, through this uh, operative that both uh, Trump Jr. and uh, these uh, DNC paid-for operatives met with as well. It's a rather convoluted story, but I think depending, uh, d- regardless of which side you might happen to be on, I mean, on the one hand, whenever there's any revelation about Hillary Clinton and the DNC and some connection with Russia, there's great rejoicing on the Republican side, whenever there's any suggestion that a member of the Trump campaign may have met with Russians, there's great rejoicing on the the Democrat side. As far as I'm concerned, we need to know uh, if Washington is so corrupt that, as it appears at this point, everybody's talking to the Russians uh, in order to gain some advantage in the uh, in the campaign. Uh, The degree to which that was the case and uh, whether or not uh, lines were crossed, that's part of the investigation. But it's frustrating to me, and I think it reveals why so many people um, have so little confidence in what happens in Washington and find politics in general so distasteful. But that's the latest, and we'll continue to follow the story as they try to sort through and perhaps provide information that's useful to the general public and understanding whether or not our politics is so significantly broken that it cannot be trusted moving forward. I appreciated Walter Williams uh, writing for the Patriot Post in which he points out one of the most challenging and important jobs for an economic professor, which he is, is to teach students how little we know and can possibly know. My longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Thomas Sowell, says it takes considerable knowledge just to realize the extent of your own ignorance. Nobel laureate Frederick August von Hayek, he admonished the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to, ma- to men rather how little they really know about what they imagine they can design, end quote. Well, the fact that we have gross ignorance about how the world operates is ignored by the know-it-all elites who seek to control our lives. Let's look at a few examples of the world's complexity. And the point he's making is when you cede too much power to those in Washington who are making decisions about things they know very little of and could not know, Um, that uh, ignorance and stupidity uh, may, in fact, uh, make decisions that cost us all. He writes, according to some estimates, there are roughly 100 million traffic signals in the United States. How many of us would like the U.S. Congress, in the name of public health and safety, to be in charge of their actual operation? Congress, or a committee it authorizes, would determine the length of time traffic lights stay red, yellow, and green, and what hours of the day and what intersections lights flash red or yellow. One can only imagine the mess Congress would create in the 40,000 cities, towns, and other incorporated places in the U.S. But managing traffic lights and getting good 
results is far less complex than managing the nation's health care system and getting good results, which Congress tries to do. Here's another task I'd ask whether you would like Congress to control. The average well-stocked supermarket carries 60,000 to 65,000 different items. Walmart carries 120,000 different items. Let's suppose Congress puts you in total control of getting just one item to a supermarket, say apples. Let's not make it easy by having um, the help of Apple wholesalers. Thus, you would have to figure out all of the inputs necessary to get apples to your local supermarket. Let's look at uh, just a few. You need crates to ship the apples. Count all the input necessary to produce crates. There's wood you'd have, you need to uh, saw to cut down trees, and saws were made of steel, so iron ore must be mined and mining equipment is needed. The workers must have shoes. The complete list of inputs to get apples to the marketplace comes to a very large, possibly an unknowable number. Forgetting any one of them, such as a spark uh, spark plug, rather, would probably mean no apples at your supermarket. The beauty of market allocation of goods and services compared with government fiat is no one person, no one person needs to know all that's necessary to get apples to your supermarket. Free markets accompanied by free trade, including international free trade, make us richer by economizing on the amount of knowledge or information needed to produce things. Think about this morning's breakfast. Let's suppose you and your spouse each had four slices of bacon and two eggs. You had coffee and your spouse had cocoa. The breakfast might have cost about $22. But what might it have cost if you, if instead of being dependent upon others, you were independent and produced your own breakfast? What do you know about raising pigs and their subsequent slaughter? Do you know how to cure pork to make bacon? Then there are the eggs, which require knowledge about the care of chickens. What about getting pigs and chicken feed? You have a big idea with the coffee and cocoa, a big problem. I doubt whether you could simulate the growing conditions in Brazil and West Africa. One thing that's guaranteed is that your breakfast would be far costlier than in the case where you depended upon the benefits of skills of others that emerge from the division of labor and trade. The bottom line is that each of us is grossly ignorant about the world in which we live. Nothing's wrong with that ignorance, but we are stupid if we believe that a politician can produce a better life than that which is obtained through peaceable, voluntary exchange with our fellow man anywhere on earth. Who know a little bit about this and that and somehow get the apple crates made, the apples in the crates and delivered to your supermarket. By the way, I think cocoa is another good thing to have as well. By the way, and we'll uh, not have enough time to go into uh, much detail, in a major victory for free speech, Riverside County Superior Court Judge Gloria Trask ruled on Monday that California must not force pro-life pregnancy medical clinics or PRCs to promote abortions to their clients. California, you might recall, had passed the so-called Reproductive Fact Act in 2015, which mandated that pro-life centers... A post signage and inform their clients about the state's taxpayer funded abortions and birth control. Well, the ruling on Monday placed a permanent injunction on that law. It would have applied to over 200 privately funded pregnancy centers, which offer free alternatives to abortion. Scott uh, Sharpin, the head of the administrator of Go Mobile for Life, a mobile ultrasound unit that serves women in the Riverside County area, praised the ruling. We are thrilled with Judge Trask's ruling, which is a huge victory for free speech. The whole notion of being compelled to share information with our patients about abortion availability, which is contrary to our mission and purpose, is fundamentally wrong. Lives will be saved because of this ruling. We'll push through on a a purely party-line vote in 2015. The law has only been enforced in one jurisdiction, the city of Los Angeles, but according to this judge's ruling, 
That will be no more. So we're grateful for that. Up next, we're going to talk with Jarrett Stepman. He's the editor of The Daily Signal. Uh, He um, has pointed out, as we discussed yesterday, that millennials, according to a new study, are developing favorable attitudes towards communism 100 years after communism swept through Eastern Europe. We'll find out what the implications of that favorability uh, may have in the years to come. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the Soviet Union ended the Cold War, but it didn't end the ongoing battle of ideas between liberty and collectivism. We talked about it yesterday on the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. A recently released survey by the victims of Communism's Memorial Foundation revealed some disturbing facts about what millennials think of communism and socialism. Jarrett Stepman joins us. He's an editor for The Daily Signal to talk about this phenomenon and what it might mean moving forward. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Now, first of all, let me invite you to comment on the victims of uh, uh, Communism's Memorial Foundation that conducted a story, uh, a study rather, on millennials and what they think about communism and socialism. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, well, it's a very interesting survey that they conducted, which, you know, they've done a lot of work in showing how there's, there's really a massive amount of ignorance about what communism is and what it's about. And I think the survey, which was, uh, which they did through YouGov, uh, was very telling about what the opinions are of millennials. It found some very, what I would say is disturbing facts about how uh, it found that 50%, around 50% of millennials think it would be better to live under socialism or communism than under capitalism. Um, already disturbing fact, but that, uh, about a fifth also said that they thought that Joseph Stalin uh, was a hero. And, and on this list included uh, individuals like Che Guevara and other uh, communist dictators. So some of the, the facts of the study were actually quite quite disturbing and it uh, showed a, a bit of historical ignorance about what communism really is and, and what it does uh, to civilizations and countries. Well, this appalling lack of uh, of. Um, understanding of history says something about them, certainly, but it says perhaps a great deal more about our education system. I would assume that these millennials um, have been through the public education system. They've been through government schools in which history was part of the curriculum. Where, if, if at all, where did the victims of Communism Memorial Foundation point the finger in terms of how they arrived at these faulty conclusions and impressions about uh, communism and socialism's impact on the world. Yes, absolutely. They, they definitely pinpoint a, a problem in our education system, that uh, the issues of communism, what surrounds it, to a generation that didn't experience the threat of the international communism of the Soviet Union, as, as earlier ones did, uh, this, this, this generation really has to be educated about what happened. Uh, it, it's not just something that can be uh, grown overnight or something that we'll just know by magic. Uh, really, it's up to educators and teachers and, and our, our country as a whole to educate future generations about what is what is still a grave threat to this country. Clearly, if over half or if about half of uh, this generation believes that communism is a better uh, system of life than capitalism, there's a serious problem there. And, and this, uh, the Victims of Communist Memorial Foundation has taken a lot of steps. There's, there's actually good news on this front in that 
There's going to be a caucus in Congress now that's going to be devoted to this issue of the victims of communism that's going to raise awareness about of what has happened before. There have been memorials put up in D.C., including one to the Holodomor uh, starvation, which happened in Ukraine in the 1930s, a story that wasn't well reported at the time, but millions of people died under the forced starvation of the Soviet Union. So there are ways to get the message out about what communism was and, and how it affected so many people. I think one of the most disturbing parts of this uh, survey is that it's clear millennials had no idea how many people were actually killed as a direct result of communism, numbers that uh, reach over 100 million people. Most millennials had no clue that the death total was so high that it caused so much death and destruction over the century of its prominence. So, you know, these issues are really ones that, that need to be brought up. And, you know, as a society, we need to do a better job of making sure that the future generations, not just millennials, understand that this pernicious ideology has caused so much misery, pain, and suffering uh, over a century. Well, it also tells us that you cannot rely on compulsory education, which every child in America is required to attend in one form or another. You cannot rely on them to educate young people sufficiently so that they gain that understanding. You write in your uh, your piece for the Daily Signal that the findings of this study should be a wake-up call to those who think that communism is no longer a threat to the United States and the West. Young people who had little personal experience with a half-century battle between Soviet tyranny and American freedom. And that's really what this is about, tyranny versus freedom. Uh, And uh, you go on to write, it's a sad indictment on a generation that grew up with more prosperity than any in human history would turn on the system that brought them there. And it's uh, it really is. uh, And I like this line too. alas, socialism appears to be the opiate of prosperous utopians. It is a sad commentary. And that seems to me uh, something of an understatement. That, that's for sure. And I, I, it's just something that I think millennials have this uh, this notion that socialism is just something that's some nice thing from Sweden, this idea and all these things. But I think that the reality of socialism is, is a, a harsh existence that most of millennial Americans have no clue about. The people of Eastern Europe, they, they know, they suffered under this for a generation. But Americans and many in the West have never suffered under it, and I think don't quite grasp uh, what its horrors are. And that's something that you, know, you can only learn through history books or through people who have actually gone through it, the generations that actually witnessed it. And I, and I really hope that we do a better job of teaching people what it really means before we make the same mistakes. I, I uh, appreciate that you reminded your readers that the New York Times did a series of, uh, of pieces on the subject, the Red Century, in which uh, they pointed out some of the uh, the, the evil uh, evils of communism, but they also featured a, a number of pieces that actually celebrated and made excuses for it. Which you know, the New York Times, the you know, the paper of of uh, note, um, not communicating as clearly as one might hope on the whole story of uh, of communism, particularly um, of Bolshevism, communism in uh, uh, in uh, Eastern Europe. Yeah, and I find this particularly disturbing. I mean, obviously, there were some uh, articles that attacked communism and what it represented, but there were others that almost looked wistfully at, at the age of communism and saw it as, well, something that was idealistic that just kind of took some bad turns. And, you know, I would say, you know, with, with the New York Times for a similar section on, on Nazism or the Holocaust, I would say absolutely not. It, it's, I think it's very inappropriate to have a section dedicated to uh, maybe looking at communism kind of nostalgically. Uh, they've ran 
puffy Saddam Lenin as an environmentalist. They've had other kind of absurd pieces that really don't tell what, what the horrors of, of communism really were. So, you know, I'd say this is part of the problem that we have, is that you know, communism is not looked on in the same way that other horrible ideologies like Nazism are looked at in modern society. And, that, and that's something that really needs to change, clearly by the results of, of the uh, victims of communism poll. Well, let me just ask you, what, what difference does it make if young people, millennials and generations that follow them find something attractive about their version of communism, what what impact is that likely to have on this constitutional republic and liberty moving forward? Oh, this, this is something that has, will have a massive impact. Now, I believe that to a certain extent, the reality of, of market forces and, and the reality of socialism will be a wake-up call to many young millennials. It will have a huge impact on the policies that we set, the state and the national level. I mean, this is something that if, if, enough, if enough of a generation of culture believes in these doctrines, uh, we're going to see an undermining of the things that have made America so great and so prosperous, the things that have made them the richest generation in world history. Those things will start to go away if these doctrines become the norm, if, if, and if they teach their children uh, also that socialism and communism, things like this, are good. So I think it has an enormous impact that it will, will impact generations that go down the line. Well, I appreciate your uh, drawing our attention to this survey and reminding us that the work is really never done, and those of us who fail to understand and appreciate history are, are destined to repeat it, and in this case, it would be a devastating uh, repeat of a devastating period. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Again, Jarrett Stepman is an editor for The Daily Signal. His piece appeared in The Signal on the 3rd of November, titled Millennials Are Clueless About Communism. Here's Why That's a Problem. You might want to check that out at the Daily Signal. Dot com. And I think it's just Daily Signal without the the. So uh, make note of that. In just a few moments, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about uh, what's coming up the remainder of this week and how to find happiness in sorrow. I appreciated a piece that was written by Randy Alcorn in which he drew his readers' attention to David Brainerd, who served as a missionary to the Delaware Indians in New Jersey. He was orphaned at 14. In college, he suffered from debilitating tuberculosis. He endured great suffering while serving uh, in a fruitful ministry. He died at the age of 29. Finding happiness in sorrow. We'll talk about that in light of events. We talked earlier today about the bodies that were found in Forest Park. Two families are going to be devastated once these individuals are identified, although it is believed that we know who they probably are. Uh, And other stories, of course, that remind us that life is fragile. We better make sure we've got things together for uh, this life and for the life to come. So we'll get into that in just a few moments right after the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to get right back into things in a moment, but I want to remind you of a couple of things. KPDQ and the Salvation Army are fighting for good, but we need your help. You can sign up as a group to ring the bell at a Salvation Army red kettle this Christmas season, and you'll help raise money to fund initiatives all year long. They rely heavily on the success of that campaign. On average, just 60 minutes of red kettle bell ringing yields enough in donations to feed 13 people. So if you want to, you know, have something meaningful to do for about an hour, 13 people fed, 
Sounds like a good exchange. So you can go to kpdq.com or um, uh, the KPDQ mobile app to volunteer and find out more, and I hope you will. Also, I want to remind you that KPDQ is giving away nearly 100 tickets to Portland's Singing Christmas Tree. You can visit kpdq.com or use your KPDQ mobile app to enter to win a family four-pack of tickets to our special matinee performance on Saturday, November 25th at the Keller Auditorium. I say our performance because I have the... Uh, the uh, privilege of uh, performing with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree and a greater group of people you will never find. I should mention that Portland's uh, Singing Christmas Tree is celebrating its 55th season with a two-hour musical production showcasing both contemporary and traditional Christmas music performed by over 350 voices, mostly adult but youth choir voices as well. The Jefferson Dancers will be back, numbers by local actors and some musicians whose names you will know. And I'm so happy to be among them. Again, go to kpdq.com or your KPDQ mobile app to enter to win your four-pack of tickets. A lot of fun. Well, there's a lot in the news that is uh, very sobering. Uh, It is... um, It's difficult to watch the world crumble around you when you know that what the world really needs at its core is a restoration of the relationship that was always intended with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I appreciated that Randy Alcorn writing for Eternal Perspective Ministries, and it was highlighted on the Oregon Faith Report, which you can find, by the way, at OregonFaithReport.com. And yes, there's stuff going on right here in our state. And he drew attention to um, David Brainerd, who lived 1718 to 1747. He served as a missionary to the Delaware Indians of uh, New Jersey. He was, as I mentioned a moment ago, orphaned at 14, and in college he suffered from debilitating tuberculosis. He endured great suffering while he served in a fruitful ministry. He died at 29. His biography inspired lots of people, including pioneer missionary William Carey, as well as missionary martyr Jim Elliott. During Brainerd's final illness, he was nursed by Jonathan Edwards' daughter, Jerusha, who may have contracted tuberculosis from him. And by the way, she died four months after he did. It's a pretty depressing story. But in fact, the story involved much happiness. We might be scratching your heads. How is that possible for him in that time? And how might it be possible for us in our time? Well, Randy Alcorn goes on. Understandably, Brainerd's diary frequently references his pain using the word 78 times and suffer or suffering 30 times. Yet the most striking thing about his writing is how many more references he makes to his happiness in God and others. He uses happy and happiness 60 times, delight 50 times, pleased and pleasure 177 times, joy and enjoy 350 times. He also uses blessed more than 200 times, often meaning happy. Well, how is that possible? Didn't you just hear about his biography? Well, though his life was not typical, like all of us, Brainerd experienced both sorrow and joy. This morning, the Lord was pleased to lift up the light of his countenance on me. Though I have been so depressed of late, respecting my hope of future serviceableness, or usefulness, as we might say today, in the cause of God, yet now I had much encouragement. I felt exceedingly calm and quite resigned to God, respecting my future employment. My faith lifted me above the world and removed all those mountains that I could not look over. On his 24th birthday, racked with pain, Brainerd wrote, "Uh, This has been a sweet, happy day to me. Hmm. Honestly, about his illness and periodic depression demonstrated Brainerd's sincerity about his happiness. He wrote, It appears such a happiness to have God for my portion that I had rather be any other creature in this lower creation than not come to the enjoyment of God. Lord, endear thyself more to me. 
Brainerd spoke of the absolute dependence of a creature upon God, the creator, for every crumb of happiness it enjoys. He said God, he said of God, rather, he is the supreme good, the only soul satisfying happiness. Perhaps that's the uh, the heart of this happiness and satisfaction and joy he experienced, knowing that God, the supreme good, is the only soul-satisfying happiness. When his body failed him, when his circumstances were difficult, when he was uh, in a, a bleak mood, he recognized that the soul-satisfying happiness that comes from God supersedes it all. One painful day, he found some relief in prayer, loved as a feeble, afflicted, despised creature to cast myself on a God of infinite grace and goodness, hoping for no happiness but from him. Tonight might, I felt, uh, or rather toward tonight, I felt my soul rejoice that God is unchangeably happy and glorious." A terribly sick young man was able to rejoice that God is, always has been, and always will be happy. How many Christians today in times of suffering take such solace in the happiness of God? Brainerd made a daily choice to meditate on God, see him all around, listen to his word and God's people, and behold him in his creation. He looked for happiness in God. He wrote, if you hope for happiness in the world, hope for it from God and not from the world, because we know that that's fleeting. If a young man without modern medicine and dying of an excruciating disease could make choices that brought him happiness in Christ, surely we can too. And again, we're talking about David Brainerd and Randy Alcorn in his Eternal Perspective Ministries writing about this missionary to the Delaware Indians of New Jersey in his diary uh, wrote most eloquently about the joy he was experiencing um, in the midst of very difficult circumstances. I'm reminded of uh, of Paul, who also wrote about the challenges he faced, both physical and other challenges, um, that for most of us would have uh, just caused us to throw up our hands and say, that's it, we're we're done. How many of us have been shipwrecked and uh, and abandoned and all of the things that he lists out in Scripture, and yet he experienced the joy of the Lord? Uh, focusing his attention, expecting that the only joy that life uh, could could offer him would come ultimately from him. So I'm I'm encouraged and reminded that we can, despite the uh, events that are taking place all around the world, we can look to him and find what we so desperately need: uh, joy and happiness in the midst of sorrow. As we're praying for those whose bodies were found in Forest Park earlier today, for the families who will at some point be notified that they've been identified and these are your sons or daughters or this is your sister or your grandchild. There's going to be great grief as we think about those who are still uh, struggling to understand the events that took place in Texas on Sunday morning as people were gathering for worship. 26 individuals that included one unborn child, uh, 26 uh, families, uh, family members who are grieving that uh, that tremendous loss. While we have uh, hope that those who were worshiping God are in his presence at this time, we also know that the, the sorrow that's left behind can be very difficult to bear. We're praying for them, but in the midst of it, pray and let your heart take courage. Uh, find joy in the Lord. I think that's our, our only hope in these difficult times. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Stephen Mansfield. He's the author of Choosing Donald Trump, God, Anger, Hope and Why Christian Conservatives Supported Him. This is a book that surveys what people were thinking at the time, uh, perhaps what they're thinking now. President Trump has a very low approval rating. The election that we talked about that took place yesterday in Virginia may or may not be a forecast of things to come. 
But nonetheless, we're going to find out what this survey says, what Christians said about why they supported Donald Trump. That's coming up on tomorrow. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.